Hey, what's up, guys? Good to be with you this morning. I, uh, I feel very excited for this sermon, for this time together, because I have so enjoyed this series that we've been exploring, this series on justice. And my heart this morning is really to wrap up the series um, with a charge. Uh, it feels more like a prayer than it does a sermon, honestly. A charge that we would go and live out these messages that we've heard. That we wouldn't see justice as a sort of intellectual exploration, as a concept, but as a way of living, as a definition of who we are as a people, as a manifesto and as a mandate for being followers of the way. Um, in, in the first sermon of the series, I talked about justice being this, um, this precedent, this, this, this way of living, in that every person that we meet, we have the opportunity to restore the God-given declaration that they are made in the image of the divine. Every person that we meet, we get to remind them of what has always been true about them. That they're not what they do, they're not what has been done to them, they're not what they have done, but that God said over them right at the beginning, you are made in my image. And justice is this way of life, of restoration, restoring our culture, restoring our family members, our friends, the people that we meet. And uh, last week was so phenomenal hearing from three different ministries, organizations working in the way of justice and righteousness. And I hope you felt inspired and invigorated. And today I want to I wanna continue the conversation and I want to look at a scripture, uh, Luke 10. And it's a scripture that we, we know, we're familiar with this scripture because most of us grew up around it. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Rosie spoke about it last week in, in kids' church, and most of us who grew up in church would have heard it in Sunday school. I want to encourage you not to switch off just because it's familiar. Sometimes that which is familiar to us, um, we can kind of hold at arm's length. It's been so close to us, we then hold it away like there's nothing we could receive from it. Let's not do that this morning. Let's remember that the words of Jesus are alive, they're living, and every time that we dive into them, we learn something new, we grow in a new way. So I wanna explore Luke 10 today, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And honestly, this sermon feels more like a prayer than it does a sermon. My prayer this morning is um, that from the words of Jesus, from the teaching of Jesus, we would be so provoked to ask God for compassion. We would be provoked to ask God to, to give us the compassion that helps change the world around us. I think compassion is the defining attribute of someone who wants to minister justice. If we minister justice from a place of compassion, then when people meet us, they'll actually meet the God who has sent us. Justice won't just be works. It, it won't just be this kind of desire to do something but it will be an unstoppable, unquenchable commissioning to reveal the heart of our compassionate and loving and kind God to everyone that we meet. And Jesus brings the home in this story. So um, let's dive in. The, uh, the first thing I want to say before I read this is, you know, Jesus always goes a level deeper. Every time you read Jesus, it goes a level deeper than the time you read it before. And, and part of the thing that has so gripped me, gripped me about this story is it really is a story about doing the works of justice. It's a story about administering justice, communicating justice, res restoration and righteousness to people that we might dislike and disagree with. It's one thing to serve those and restore those that we have more than in a charitable sense. It's one thing to say, well, I can give to you because I have something that you don't. That can actually become something that we're quite good at and quite easy to do. It's another thing to say, 
I want to meet even those people that I find it very difficult to get on with, to connect with, to agree with. And that's really where Jesus is leading us this morning. So let's dive in. This is Luke 10, and I'm going to read from uh, verse 25. I'll read all the way through, and then I'm going to go back and just reflect on it, dive in, in prayer um, and in reflection. Luke 10, verse 25, it says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, to put Jesus to the test. And he said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Jesus said, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and you'll love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Now go and do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So Jesus said, He replies with a story. This is the genius of Jesus. He replies with a story. He said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell amongst robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave the innkeeper, gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Jesus asked this question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell amongst the robbers? Remember the man has asked him, who is my neighbor? Who was the neighbor? And the man says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. And that's really why I hear Jesus saying to us this morning, my friends, you go and do likewise. At the end of this sermon series, after everything we've heard from the biblical overview of justice to Jonathan giving us this beautiful pastoral charge, this mandate to go and love our city, to the three people we heard last week sharing about what they do, Jesus says to us, you go and do likewise. I'm looking down this camera lens, but I'm looking to everybody's eyes who's watching this morning. You go and do likewise. This scripture is so provocative, it's subversive. It's not simply what you read on the page. There's so much more going on. I wanna dive into it because it's layered. It's always a level deeper with Jesus. So this man stands up to test him. It says in the scripture, he's a lawyer. Other translations say a scholar, right? This man is a learned man. He understands the scriptures, the Torah. He understands what it means to be a follower of God in the way of Moses, right? And effectively, this guy's trying to catch Jesus out. Have you ever had someone ask you a question and you know they're not asking you the question because they're really intrigued about your answer. They're asking you the question because they want you to confirm their bias. They want to try and catch you out. They want to see if basically you agree and that's what Jesus that's that's what a man is doing to Jesus he says how do I inherit eternal life remember Jesus said I've come to bring life John 10 and life in abundance I've come to help you live fully here fully now I've come to give you a life that doesn't end with death that's what I'm doing perissos right and uh, and the man says to him how do I get that eternal life so Jesus replies well you're a learned man you're a scholar you understand the law what is written in the law how do you read it So the man quotes the law and he quotes the verse that summarizes all 613 laws. And he says, well, you love God with everything that you have. 
You love God with everything that you have, and you love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Jesus says, hey, there you go. You read it. You know it. Go and live it. Right? And so the man says, and this is interesting, it says, the man says, trying to justify himself, he says, okay, well, who is my neighbor? Why does he ask that question? Well, he's just summarized 613 laws, right? By saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. So then he says to Jesus, trying to justify himself, who is my neighbor? Why would he ask that? I think this is the reason. If Jesus can confirm, right, that who he believes his neighbor is, is in fact his neighbor, then he has justified himself and can inherit eternal life. If Jesus will say to him, well, your neighbor is X, Y, and Z, and then the man can say, well, that's who I'm loving as my neighbor. Well, the man just passed the test and he's inherited eternal life, trying to justify himself. So this whole conversation about the Good Samaritan begins with the desire to justify ourselves, to try and define goodness by our standards, to try and define what it means to be a follower of the way by our standard. I do it all the time. Maybe you can relate. You pray prayers uh, that seemingly sound really noble and sound really sort of selfless, but in my heart, I know that I'm trying to ask God to agree with the way that I see the world or agree with what I believe are kind of my parameters of comfort and discomfort. God, would you just confirm that I'm living, I'm living out there, man. I'm living on the edge. I'm living in, in conviction. I'm living in courage. I'm trying to justify myself. That's how this whole conversation begins. So when the man says, well, tell me who my neighbor is, Jesus responds with a story. And this story is so powerful. This story is so provoking. There is a man who's left Jerusalem. He's going to Jericho, right? He tells us, isn't this genius, man? He tells a story. He doesn't get into the argument. He tell you a story. There's a man, he's leaving Jerusalem, he's going to Jericho. He walks down a dangerous road and he gets robbed. He gets beaten up. They strip him naked, right? He's lying on the road and then a priest walks along, a learned man, a scholar of the law. He's walking up the road, right? The man's left Jerusalem, he's going to Jericho. So it's likely that the man, the priest, is going from Jericho to Jerusalem because that's where the temple is. He's a priest. He's probably going to serve in the temple, right? Now, check this out. He sees the man and he crosses the road. He doesn't want to touch him. Why not? I always felt like, well, he's the bad guy in the story, you know? But it's a little deeper than that. He's a priest and he actually has a spiritual mandate and he can't touch anything that's dead. He's a spiritual mandate to consecrate himself, to keep himself clean, and he isn't allowed by the law to touch something that's dead. The man is half dead. He might have thought, the man looks dead, I'm not gonna go near him, right? This is, this, is, this is the hook that Jesus is kind of bringing in here. The first character in the story is a man who is kind of referencing the same man who asked the question. He's bringing in a person into the story to connect with the man who asked the question, trying to justify himself. So if Jesus was, if I was trying to justify myself and Jesus was telling the story, he'd say, yeah, there's a dude, he's beaten up, he's lying on the street, and then uh, this hipster <laughs> starts walking up the hill. This guy with a beard who likes poetry, right? Starts walking, and I'm thinking, this character sounds a lot like me, right? And it does. The man Jesus brings into the story, the first character after the beaten up guy, is effectively the same man who asked the question. The point Jesus is making here is, you know the law. You know the law. Just like the priest knows the law. He can't touch someone that's dead. 
but I'm making the point right at the, out, right at the outset, right at the beginning, that the man is choosing spiritual, religious, doctrinal purity over the opportunity to love. First character is introduced. Second character comes along, Levite, same situation. He does it again. So the man, the point, the, the people in the story that the man would most connect with already at the beginning are not the heroes of the story. We have to hear Jesus speaking into our lives at this moment if we really want to feel stirred and convicted by this story. Sometimes when we talk to God, we are already positioning ourselves as the hero of the story. Because I know what I believe. I know how I see the world. I know what I think is right. And therefore, it's very difficult for me to approach the spiritual life as someone who doesn't know, who might actually be seeing things wrong, who might be missing it. And that's what Jesus does over and over again. So then later on in the story, he brings up the Samaritan. Let me read the verse to you. He says this, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the man was, and he saw him, and he had compassion. So the two tensions we're seeing in the story already a spiritual religious duty and this word compassion. Religious duty and compassion. And we have to hear that this morning. We have to hear Jesus talking about that this morning. That there's things that we do that we just believe are right. It's what we've always thought. It's the way we've always seen things. It's the people we've always hung out with. It's the people we've always connected with. It's the language and the phrases that we've always used, right? There is that, but then there's this idea this concept, this word, compassion. And compassion is what is really disruptive in this story. The Samaritan comes along and Jesus says he had compassion. So the, the, there's, there's a couple things here. I'm gonna start with compassion, then I'm gonna talk about a Samaritan because it's layered. Um, the, the word compassion in the Greek is oiktrimus, right? It's a Greek word. But I wanna, I wanna look at it in the Hebrew. I wanna hear how the listeners uh, in the moment of Jesus telling the story would have heard this word compassion, right? So there's, um, there's two words that I wanna explore, two Hebrew words. Stay with me, my friends, this morning. And they're really, really important. The word in Hebrew for compassion is rahum. And it's a word used all throughout the scriptures, but most significantly, it's actually the first word that God uses to describe himself, rahum, right? Um, Exodus 34 verse 6, he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the compassionate, gracious God, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. God describes himself with this word rahum, okay, in Hebrew, rahum, and it's used throughout the scriptures. God has rahum upon the Israelites when they're caught in captivity, in slavery to the Egyptians. He has rahum upon them as they walk through the wilderness providing for them. And throughout the scriptures, we see God is this God of rahum, this God of compassion. And very often, the word rahum is synonymous with this word, very similar word, rahem. Stay with me, rahem. And rahem actually means womb, right? So you have this word compassion and this word womb, and they're really interconnected. That's why throughout the scriptures, when God is spoken of being compassionate, he's often paired with the imagery of a mother. So in Isaiah, this is a really powerful scripture, in Isaiah 49, 15, it says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no rahum, no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you, says God to the people. He defines himself as the first way God ever describes himself is with rahum, compassion. And he speaks of compassion and, and, and the womb is this kind of interlocked concept, this interlocked idea. 
Why is that important? Well, the greatest, most extravagant, most powerful and undeniable expression of Rahum is Jesus. Now, how does Jesus enter the world? Rahim, through the womb. God so feels compassion for us, for humanity, that he becomes human to meet us in our suffering and in our disturbance of peace, right? In our, in our, in our sin. He comes and he meets us in, in, our, in our corrupted state, in our need for healing. His rahem, his rahum is, is, is uh, given to the world through the womb. It's beautiful and powerful imagery. So when Jesus brings in this word, Rahum, it has huge connotations. It's really profound. It's a big part of the story. The Samaritan had Rahum. He had compassion. It's, it's an attribute that God described himself with. Now, why is this provocative? I'll tell you. There's the priest, there's the Levite, and then there's the Samaritan. Now, the Samaritan is, I mean, it's a, it's a term we use all the time now. One of the, the most um, well-known charities in our country, the Samaritans, who help people that are dealing with uh, suicidal thoughts and hatred of self. I mean, they're just phenomenal, the Samaritans. They're, they're, they're doing incredible work. The phrase, a good Samaritan, is just kind of a part of our language. So why is this phrase Samaritan? Why is this Samaritan person so provocative in the story? 500 years before Jesus is the first time we really hear about the Samaritans in the book of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And um, prior to that, 200 years before that, so about 700 years before Jesus, the Samaritans kind of come to be in this context. <clears throat> the Assyrians, low history, stay with me. The Assyrians um, attack Israel and they, they hold Israel captive. They take the Hebrews and they take them out of the northern area of Israel. Now, some of the Hebrews, some of the Israelites stay in Israel and they begin marrying and reproducing with the people already in the land. Their offspring, so their mixed race offspring, become the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans reject a lot of the traditional Hebrew ideas and traditions, understandings of God. They have a different Pentateuch, a different five first books of the Bible. They reject the prophets. They see themselves as the true Israelites, the true people of God. And so for 700 years, there is this brewing animosity, distrust and hatred between the Israelites and the Samaritans. Um, the Israelites see the Samaritans as these kind of heretical pagans and it's racism. They're deeply, deeply steeped in hatred towards each other. In Nehemiah, they oppose the building of the wall. It's deeply complex, but it's defined by this animosity and hatred, right? So check this out. The story goes like this. Two men, priest, Levite, the two people that the man asking the question would associate with. And then Jesus introduces the Samaritan. Remember, the whole context of this story is, who is my neighbor? The Samaritan comes along, and as soon as he said the word Samaritan, I mean, just think of a person, a people group that you would find most offensive. You know, it could have been something that you heard someone do on the news that you just think, oh, I, I couldn't even be in the same room as that person. It could be the way you might feel when you hear about a, a, a terrorist organization, just absolute instantaneous kind of just uh, rage and, and defensiveness. Jesus says, Samaritan, that's the, that's the reaction. So the Samaritan comes along, he sees the man on the ground, and then Jesus attributes this God-defined uh, characteristic of Rahum to the Samaritan. The Samaritan acted like God. 
and had this compassion for the man. He picks him up, he puts him on his donkey, he takes him to the inn, he gives the innkeeper even more money to take care of him. It's just phenomenal. And then Jesus says to the man, so who was the neighbor in that story? You ask the question, who's my neighbor? Who was the neighbor? The man couldn't even say the Samaritan. So he said, ah, the one who had mercy. Jesus said, yes, you go and do likewise. He's saying to the man, go and be like the Samaritan. Go and be like the person that you find offensive. Go and be like the person that you can't trust. Why is this so provocative? Jesus is saying to do righteousness, to do justice, to follow the way of my kingdom isn't staying in the lines of your comfort. It isn't serving people that you feel comfortable serving and helping and associating with. That isn't the way of Jesus. I mean, it can begin there. But my, my, my message, my prayer this morning for myself and for us is, God, would you give us such a sense of rahum, such a sense of compassion, that there would be no one in this world that we're unable to be in the room with, that we're unable to wash the feet of, to serve and to treat with that divine blueprint, that divine DNA made in the image of God. In this story, God is breaking the boxes. Do you know what, let me, let me put it like this. God isn't breaking the boxes, that's not right. God isn't out of the box. There is no box. To even say God is outside of our box puts God in reference to the box. <laughs> there is no box, right? We've grown up with these religious ideas of who God is, how he acts, how he speaks, what he looks like, you know? We grew up with white Jesus. We grew up with an image of Jesus with fair skin, blue hair, blue eyes, blonde hair, blue eyes, I at least. It took me a while to realize that Jesus is a dark-skinned, you know, Jewish man. That's who he, he's a Jewish man. The king of kings is still Jewish. And that is offensive to a lot of people. Jesus talks about the Samaritan because the Samaritan is particular. It's specific. And it will cause a provocative, like, reaction in people. And we have to recognize in this series, as we, as we come to an end, we have to recognize, oh God, I don't want to do justice and righteousness in the way that is just on my terms and is easy for me. You cannot be contained by my cultural bias. You cannot be contained by my comfort. I genuinely want to impact this world for your kingdom side by side with you, Jesus, co-laboring with you. Would you break my heart, Jesus, for what breaks yours? Would you open me up to be able to see the world and the people in it the way that you see it? For this Hebrew man asking who is my neighbor, Jesus was saying, the Samaritan is your neighbor. That's who your neighbor is. The one that you hold at arm's length, the one that you're offended by, the one that you can't be around. I'm gonna close with this. In Matthew uh, 5, 44, Jesus says, if someone asks you to go one mile with them, go the extra mile. You know, that's, you know that, that, that phrase, that verse. This is why it's so powerful. The Roman soldiers would be wearing their armor and all their, their baggage and belongings. And they could at any point grab a, grab a Hebrew and say, carry all of this for one mile. They were legally allowed to do that. It was an act of oppression. It was an act of power and they had the right to do it. So Jesus was saying, if someone comes along to you, if a soldier who's oppressing you comes along to you and says, go the extra, walk a mile, go the extra mile. Why? Because when you do that, when you go the extra mile, when you love someone who doesn't deserve to be loved, when you serve someone that you find difficult, let's put it that way, to be around, well, 
that's when you're really aligning yourself with the kingdom. That's when you're really representing Jesus. He says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. He says, pray for your enemies. If you love yourself, there's no one that you can't love. (laughs) If you learn to love yourself, there's no one that you can't love. Because as you learn to love yourself, you realize, I love myself because God loves me, because God has given me grace, because God adores me, because I'm found in Him and He is residing in me. I can love myself because God deems me worthy of being loved. And therefore, if that's true of everyone else, then everyone is my neighbor. I can pray for my enemies because as soon as I pray for my enemies, they're no longer my enemies. That's the whole point of Jesus saying that. Once you start praying for your enemies, they're not your enemies anymore. Once you pray for those who persecute you, the power shift changes. And my prayer this morning is that we would go into our lives, into our cities, into our families, into our mirrors when we look at ourselves with such a deep sense of rahum, like a mother with her child. You know, I look at Kara when she had Eden in the womb, just the growing sense of nurture and love that we would feel that Christ in us, that we would feel that we would feel pregnant with compassion. That as we end this series, my prayer is God move us from just an understanding of justice into an application of it, moved by, spurred on by, channeling compassion in Jesus' name. God, we thank you for this, this series. We thank you for these last few weeks. We thank you that your kingdom is here and your kingdom is coming. We thank you that we have the opportunity to love everyone. And that isn't just a wishy-washy big statement that it looks like something. God, reveal to us, I'm just praying this prayer right now specifically, reveal to us in our hearts, who is the Samaritan in our life? Who is the person that when their name is evoked, when the, the idea of that type of person is communicated, we feel offensive or we feel offended, offended or defensive? Lord, reveal that to us. Would you forgive us? And God, would you show us how to love them? May it begin with prayer. Show us how to love them that we would do justice and righteousness on this earth through all that we meet. In your name we pray, amen.